Greetings, friends. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Sean. Website can be found at scriptureandprophecy.com. That's where you go to find the archives, and that's where you go to support this mission of truth. Today we are resuming our study in the gospel according to Matthew. We're ready for chapter 5 today, and chapter 5 is a very important chapter. This is the one where Jesus basically gives this sermon, and we have the Beatitudes, which we're going to take some time to break down what they actually are saying. We have Jesus talking about the law of God. We have him addressing specific issues wherein he seems to raise the bar, but really what he's doing is just giving clarification and addressing issues like murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love. He's not replacing God's law or or anything like that. He's giving clarity to those things and what it actually looks like and what the intent really is. And so we're going to be taking a deep look at those things this morning. I'm going to read the Beatitudes here, which is the first 11 verses, and then we're going to go back through them and make sure we understand clearly what, they're, what they represent and what they're saying. So open up your hearts. Let's let the Word of God speak to us this morning. Let's begin the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, let's have a deeper look. Sometimes with these things that are critically important and very well known, 
we have a tendency to kind of gloss over it. All I've heard the Beatitudes before. Let's take a fresh look. Like I said, open up your hearts. There's something here for you. Let's start going through each one here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This poor in spirit has to do with spiritual humility. Let me read you some commentary from this study Bible here. I think it just really nails it. Poor in spirit is the opposite of self-sufficiency. This speaks of the deep humility of recognizing one's utter spiritual bankruptcy apart from God. It speaks, it describes those who recognize one's, not only one's own spiritual bankruptcy, but their conscience of their own lostness and hopelessness apart from divine grace. Those who are poor in spirit, they are not looking... Again, they're not thinking of themselves as, as spiritual giants. They completely understand that apart from God's grace and mercy, they're spiritually bankrupt. And this is going to be the theme with all of these. Really, they're all a picture of humility and understanding desperate need for God's grace and mercy. Not, any, not only in how you interact with God, but how you interact with others. Let's continue on. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This isn't just speaking to the idea of you're blessed are those who are mourning about anything. This is specifically talking about mourning and grieving over sin. Matthew Henry calls it godly sorrow. There's a big difference between those who have a nonchalant attitude towards sin and then those who grieve. They're desperately distraught over sin. Here's what Matthew Henry says. Those that mourn, it's that godly sorrow which worketh true repentance, watchfulness, a humble mind, and a continual dependence for an acceptance on the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, with constant seeking the Holy Spirit to cleanse away the remaining evil, seems here to be intended. Heaven is the joy of our Lord, a mountain of joy to which our way is through a veil of tears. Such mourners shall be comforted by their God. Blessed are those who mourn, those who get on their face and they just are distraught over their decisions to sin. 
hurts. Blessed are those people. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Many translations will say, blessed are the meek. Again, Matthew Henry says, the meek are those who quietly submit to God, who can bear insult, who are silent or return a soft answer, who in their patience keep possession of their own souls when they can scarcely keep possession of anything else. These meek ones are happy, even in this world. Meekness promotes wealth, comfort, safety, even in this world. Meekness is a picture of self-control. Right? I think that's what Matthew Henry's getting across here. They have self-control. They don't just raise their voice and lash out. They quietly submit to God. And they can bear insults. They can bear... They have, this, they have self-control. Next. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I think this is twofold. Obviously, there's one, and we'll, we'll be addressing this thought again, because Jesus is going to bring up a similar thought here shortly. There's, incent, there's a sense in which we long and seek after righteousness and holiness in our lives, in our behavior, Right? But we don't, it's not the same sense like with the right, like the righteousness, like thinking of the, of the Pharisees. It's an understanding that righteousness comes from your relationship with God, and it's actually Christ's righteousness that makes us right with God. That's the real righteousness that we seek after as believers. Here's what the study Bible says. This is the opposite of self-righteousness of the Pharisees. It speaks of those who seek God's righteousness rather than attempting to establish a righteousness of their own. What they seek will fill them. It will satisfy their hunger and thirst for a right relationship with God. And then the others are pretty self-evident, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. By the way, the scriptures don't tell us to never judge. What is taught here in the New Testament is the measure in which you judge others, right? That's the measure that will be used on you. So, blessed are the merciful. You see somebody fail. Your attitude isn't like, look at that loser. Your attitude is, oh, I feel terrible for that person because I know that if it wasn't for God's grace and mercy, I could make that same bad decision. I've been in positions where I was tempted to make that decision. That's, see, that's humility. That's mercy. Blessed and pure. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Listen, blessed are those who have been persecuted. What? Not just persecuted, but for a reason. For the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of... When you're persecuted for righteousness sake, which we're starting to see in our day, right? When you say, I'm not going to go along with that filth, with that perversion. No, you're not doing that to our children. And then you start to be canceled. And you start to be harassed. You're, you're facing persecution for the sake of what's right. For righteousness. And then he takes it a step further. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, even falsely make false accusations and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not because of some stupid thing you did. Not because you have a poor attitude at work or you do a terrible job. Sometimes people are like, oh, I'm being persecuted and um, and the scriptures say I'm blessed. It's blessed are you when you're persecuted and, and you're treated badly and, and these types of things for the sake of Christ. You're still doing the right things. You're still walking upright and living a godly life. You're being persecuted because of Jesus. That's when you're blessed. Not when you're persecuted because of bad behavior. I hope I've done I hope I've done some justice to the beatitudes with the help of Matthew Henry and his brilliant commentary on these things. It's about really at the end of the day it's about humility, it's about seeking a relationship with God, it's about God's righteousness and grace and mercy and how we Long for it, but also give it to others, to our brothers and sisters. That same grace and mercy that God is showing us, we show to others. Continuing on, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot by men. Please note, this is what has happened to a large majority of the Christian church here in the West. It's become become salt without any saltiness. It has no effect Because the church has decided we want to be relevant to the world. We want to conform to culture instead of being a salt to the earth and a light on a hill. You walk into many churches as a lost, dying person without Christ and you leave in the same condition. Maybe worse. The church has lost its saltiness. 
We're going to be a salt and light. There's nothing that comes in contact with salt that's not altered. Right? You put salt on anything, um, it's going to significantly change the taste. Right? It has an impact. If you have salt that has no impact, then what's it good for? Nothing. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until until heaven and earth pass away, the smallest letter or stroke shall not pass away from the law until it is accomplished. Whoever, then, annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Alright, please note. We'll address that uh, statement about your righteousness surpassing that of the Pharisees here in a minute. Again, I think it's twofold. Kind of like hungering and thirsting after righteousness sakes. There's a, well, I'll get to that in a second. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law. Right? Because a lot of times what is taught is that Jesus came and now the law is completely gone. And it's just a free for all. Do as thou wilt. Now, there are clearly some things that have been fulfilled in him and have changed. As an example, I don't report to a Levitical priesthood or bring a sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrifice. I now serve a priest, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, that being Jesus. Okay? So there's a lot of the ceremonial things are are fulfilled in Christ and are no longer something that we need to be worrying about. But the moral law and God's moral standards have not changed. Jesus says, "What is? look what he says about the commandments. Whoever then annuls one of the least commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So if you're saying this, uh, we don't have to worry about this anymore. And you're teaching other people that you will be called the least in heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What's he getting at? 
For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. Again, twofold. Let me read the commentary. This is a John MacArthur study Bible. An NSAB. But this is on point. Here's what he says. On the one hand, Jesus was calling his disciples to a deeper, more radical holiness than that to the Pharisees. So that's number one. See, it's twofold. There's a sense in which you are seeking after righteousness and holiness in your behavior. After all, what did the scripture say? Be ye holy because he is holy. You've heard me say a billion times, actions matter because actions demonstrate what you truly believe. James says, I'll show you my faith. I'll show you. I'll demonstrate to you what I believe, not by the words that come out of my mouth, but by the way I live my life. The Pharisees talked a good game, but they didn't live it. They were hypocrites. That's what Jesus always called them. You hypocrites. So when he says your righteousness must surpass that, There's a sense in which it is the way you walk. But that's not the whole story, right? On one hand, Jesus is calling his disciples to a deeper, more radical holiness than that of the Pharisees. Phariseeism had a tendency to soften the law's demands by focusing only on external obedience. In the verses that follow, which we're getting ready to read... Jesus impacts the full moral significance of the law and shows that the righteousness the law calls for actually involves an eternal conformity to the spirit of the law rather than an external compliance to the letter. And then, of course, on the other hand, What's being set up here is an impossible barrier, you know, barrier to a work salvation. So there's a sense in which we seek righteousness and holiness in our behavior, but when it comes down at the end of the day, when it comes to entering into the kingdom of heaven, the only righteousness that matters is the one that's been imputed to us through the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith in that. We seek after righteousness and holiness in our behavior, not for salvation, but because of it. Now, the issue is, God is looking at the heart. His commandments are about your heart. And that's what Jesus is getting to in these next verses. He's not saying... The law about murder has changed or become even more stringent than it was. He's getting ready to say this is what it actually means when it says do not murder. It's more than just don't go stab somebody or shoot somebody because you're angry or whatever. It's deeper than that. Let's take a look. Verse 21. You have heard 
that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Those are strong words. Verse 23, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altars, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and then you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. So you see, if you have that, if you have hatred towards your brother, if the only thing keeping you from killing them or wanting them to die is the consequences, well, you've still done it in your heart. That's what Jesus is trying to get across. He's going to do the same thing with adultery. Verse 27, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, Jesus is not advocating for you to cut your eye out or cut your arm off. What's the context here? The context here is, you have heard, don't commit adultery. This doesn't just mean to go, that you go, that you're out and about and you sleep with another woman who's not your wife. If you're looking at another woman and lusting after her, it's like a picture of coveting, You've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Again, the only thing keeping you from it is either opportunity or the outward consequences. But you, in your heart, that's what you want. You've committed adultery already. Then he follows it up with, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your, if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter into heaven without these things than to enter into hell with your whole body. The picture he is painting here is you got to get to the root cause of the issue and eliminate it. If, if your Netflix subscription and you're constantly watching shows and it's constantly sexual content and then you can't help but think about other, about women and you can't, and this goes both ways, men and women nowadays. In fact, the statistics are showing that women 
are watching pornography at the same rate of men and and divorces or 80% women leaving the men now in western society so it's definitely going, it's it's definitely a problem with both if you're if looking at social media like Instagram and all these things ends up leading you to watching pornography or leads you to struggle with more lust you got to eliminate that thing from your life you're much better off without that thing that causes you that that stepping stone that leads you to those things if there's a certain place that you go that you don't have to go to that ends up leading you to lust and committing adultery in your heart and stop going there. That's what he's getting at. You've got to you've got to cut it off at the source, whatever the thing is. Real true Christians, and I believe this, when we sin and we make mistakes, it grieves us, right? Like the beatitude here says. The godly sorrow, those who mourn. And then we take the time to go, what led to this? Like, how did I get to this point? And then we retrace those steps and we start attacking that area that led us there. I hope that's making sense. We're better off without that thing than we are to go into hell. You don't think your actions matter? I know I'm running out of time here, so let's move through these next ones fairly quickly. Verse 31. It was said, Whosoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. According to this, you are not to get divorced with the exception of marital unfaithfulness. People want to argue and debate that, but it's very clear. Verse 33, Oaths. Again, you have heard that the ancients told you, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. I don't know if any of you have ever fell in the trap, but I certainly have if you, if you fail miserably with some kind of sin or something like that. And then you come before God and you say, I promise, because you think if I make this promise to God, I will definitely adhere to it. Have any of you ever done this? Shamefully, I have. I come to God and I'm like, I'm, I'm never doing this. I promise. I commit to you that I'm never going to do this again. And then what happens? 
What I've learned over the years is I never do that. I never come before the throne of God and promise that I'm not going to do this or promise that I'm going to do that or this or that. I come to the throne of God and I ask that his will be done and that he would help me to not do this thing or not do that thing. No more do I come and make a vow before the throne of God. Because I've seen in my own life that even though the heart is the intent of the heart is right like that's what I really want to do I know that I'm such a fallen creature that apart from God's grace and mercy if he doesn't restrain me from sin I will fail so I no longer make those oaths just a handful of verses left and then we'll be done for this morning You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt. Let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Please note, I'll just say one quick thing about this. An eye for an eye did not mean that you have to do, that you get to do to me exactly what I've done to you. What it means is you could not do any more to me than what I've done to you. But Jesus is saying here, don't even do that. Right? Like if I gouged out your eye, The most you can do to me is gouge out my eye. Right? An eye for an eye. The crime, the crime, the punishment fits the crime. Jesus is saying that, don't even go to that limit. Rather be merciful and graceful. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said you shall not that you shall love your enemy. I'm sorry, let me start over. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that your father may be sons of your father, so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That, my friends, is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. I hope that I've done some justice to this. I I feel like I haven't, (laughs) like I've come up short here. But the good news is, is the word of God doesn't come up short. So even though my commentary and my thoughts and my reading may come up short, the word of God never comes up short. And so I pray that it's pierced your hearts this morning and caused you to draw closer to him. Thank you for listening. Peace and grace be with all of you.
And until next time, God bless.